necessarily kind of mining each and every chapter or each and every verse for it. So, uh, and it's going to be the same next couple of weeks because they're long also. So, Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed in splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chamber on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messenger's wings, his ministers, a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. You covered it with deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, so that they may not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats, and the rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows its time for setting. You make darkness and it is night when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breasts, they die. And return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his work, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, even in reading this, I am in awe. The connection and the beauty and the love and the, the generosity so apparent in your creation as a reflection of you is, is clear, and yet I'm, I'm kind of jealous at how in awe of even more the psalmist is. Lord, help us to see you more clearly. Help us to have you be our wisdom. We pray this.
pray for as you know. Amen. Well, you would think that the one thing that a church in the front range of Colorado would not need is a sermon on the beauty of creation. In fact, I have actively avoided preaching this sermon for six years. Um, and what's amazing, uh, actually, I even, I even met somebody this morning uh, who is here on work and is coming to church instead of going to the mountains and say, good for you. Well done. You are a living embodiment of what I hope to communicate this morning. Um, but in so many ways, th th this, is, this feels a little bit like, and it's, it's hard uh, for me as I was thinking about this, because it's a little bit like preaching to preachers, right? There's, there's preaching to, to the choir, and then there's preaching to the evangelist, right? As if, as if you would tell anybody else to move out here, because now that you're here, you don't want anybody else to move here. That's a whole other sermon, though. But verse 1 of Psalm 104 actually shows us where our need is in the midst of that. When it says, bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. Right off the bat, the psalmist is describing the relationship between the creator and his creation. And that relationship is that creation is, gives form and gives, helps us to see the goodness of God and who God is in ways that we would not otherwise understand. In other words, it's easy to enjoy the beauty of creation without beholding the creator's reflection in it. And so in the midst of that, someone for the way that it helps us this morning, and, and the way, how I want you to hear this is, is kind of like a, a, a poetic, aesthetic, theological lens for more fully loving creation in the way that God is clothed in it. We see this, right, verses 2 through 23. I'm going I'm to kind of summarize a huge chunk of this rather quickly, which is the psalmist not just explaining but demonstrating and actually doing the thing that he is describing, which is beholding both creator and creation. Now, I encourage you, read through this later because honestly, there's, there's less to explain here than there is to dwell in and to savor. This is something, and this is an aspect of Scripture that isn't really meant to be like, okay, well, let me tell you all of the nerdy things about this exact metaphor here. It's, it's more like to behold, to see, to, to, to absorb it, to imbibe it. Because this whole section through verse 23 is this, this long, glad inventory of all the facets of creation that are credited to their creator. And, and, and this is even more beautiful and telling than, than, than at first glance. Um, on the screen behind me, there's going to be a chart that shows how, and you, by the way, don't try to even absorb all of this. I just want to point out and show you this, this, this amazing parallel, how Psalm 104 is actually mirroring and following the outline and the structure of Genesis 1 when God created all things. There is, there's a thematic unity and, and beauty in this. And the whole reason that the psalmist is doing this is because he is smitten. He is smitten with the beauty and the awesomeness and the wisdom. With the, the one, one commentary I read that said, said the ordered coherence. Which if you're an engineer, you're like, that's my kind of person. The ordered coherence and the generativity of creation as designed by Yahweh. In other words, it's to say, oh, that, that amazing thing, God did that. That's him. That's Yahweh. That's what he is clothed in. It's not him, but he's 
Psalm 104 is kind of, in some, it's this kind of part love letter, part thank you letter to God, listing all of the psalmist's favorite things about the creator that is reflected in creation. But the psalmist, he doesn't stop there. He wants us to see how. It's not enough to, to say that the, the creator is reflected in creation. He also wants us to see how it reflects his goodness. And that is in the generativity of creation. Now, if you're not familiar with the word generativity, um, it's, it's not like something I whip out in my everyday conversation either. Uh, generativity, I got this word and this concept from my favorite artist of all time. His name is Makoto Fujimura. Um, he is, he's not just an artist, he's an author, he's started nonprofits. had the opportunity to meet him on a couple of occasions. He's an incredible, amazing person. And he wrote um, uh, about generativity in this book called Art and Space. And this is what he says about it. He says, at the most basic level, we call something generative if it is fruitful, originating new life, or producing offspring as with plants and animals, or producing new parts as with stem cells. When we are generative, we draw on creativity to bring into being something fresh and life-giving. It is constructive, expansive, affirming, growing beyond a mindset of scarcity. That is how the psalmist understands all of creation as a reflection of God's generativity. And then in, in Fujimura gives, as part of this definition, three categories or three kind of essentially ingredients of generativity that almost perfectly map onto verses 25 through 30. It's, it's incredible. The first is this. Generativity includes what he calls genesis moments. Now, creation is this kind of ongoing, recurring genesis moment, and especially as articulated in 25 through 26. Fujimura, in his book, he talks about how when he, as an artist, was, was doing a prestigious MFA program a master's in fine arts at Tokyo University. He's the only non-Japanese born, he's, a, he's Japanese American, but he's not Japanese born. He's the first Japanese, non-Japanese born artist to ever be accepted into it. Um, and while in that stage of life, he and his wife were dirt poor, right? Some of you have been to grad school, you're like, oh, I know, I get that, okay? Um, his wife was also at the time uh, starting her master's in counseling degree, and they were so dirt poor, they were talking about how they would just eat like noodles and butter uh, for like at least three or four nights out of the week just to feel full. Um, and in that season, one day, while he is like stressed and anxious and, and like, how are we going to pay the bills? How are we going to keep eating? His wife comes home after getting groceries and he sees that she walks in and brings an, a, a bouquet of flowers. And according to his account, he kind of loses it. He's frustrated. He's like, how are we supposed to eat? How do we, how do we afford food when, and, and, and being able to continue eating when, when you're buying these flowers? Like, this is so unnecessary. And he said that she just, without skipping a beat, anticipating exactly that reaction, says, my soul needs to eat too. Would you please be an artist? If anybody, if, if, if Makoto Fujimura can figure that out, how easily do we? And, and the psalmist has, in, in Psalm 104, he actually goes in this direction that would have been really stunning and shocking and surprising to his original audience. In um, verse 25 and 26, he's describing the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable. Water 
in ancient Near Eastern poetry and literature, especially the ocean, is, is this kind of symbol of chaos, of, of mystery, of unknown. You can't see into the depths, and you never know when a storm is going to ar- arise and threaten you, uh, your ship and, and cause you to, to flounder or drown. It is dangerous and, and exciting and mysterious and chaotic all at the same time. And then he says that there go the ships and Leviathan, which he formed. And Leviathan is the kind of epitome of this, right? Leviathan is, is you know, we don't know what the psalmist meant, whether it was like a whale or a giant fish or a shark. Or, it's, it's, a, it's a monster that represents the power and the chaos of the sea of uncertainty and all of these things. And he says that God formed it play with it. Um, how many of you, when you're like praying or even thinking about God, are are like, oh yeah, he's playful? Man, that's, if that strikes you as weird, it strikes me as, me as strange to me as well, that God would create this crazy thing that we, we think of as chaotic and epitomizing power and uncertainty and danger, and not only is it unthreatening to God and to the psalmist, therefore, it is we live in a culture that increasingly feels like it is just bereft of wonder it is devoid of beauty not because wonder and beauty are not possible or because it's not there but because we are trained to look past it to focus on and hyper focus on utility and to stress about scarcity whether that is our bandwidth and our energy or our time or our money or our resources or our care or our compassion even, or even our joy and our playfulness. This is a culture of efficiency. Um, someone you've heard me uh, mention many times here, Alan Nobles, and who wrote this book that I have also cited many times, You Are Not Your Own, uh, talks about this as a culture of efficiency and how that is one dimension of what he calls uh, the, the, the difficulty of belonging to God in an inhuman world. This is such a big deal um, that this fall, uh, we're going to start a monthly book discussion on this book. And this is kind of a side note and tangent, but very related to what we're talking about. Because if you have any difficulty with wonder and appreciating beauty, there's a really good reason for it. Probably many reasons for it. Because we live in an inhuman world of our own creation. And so if you want to explore that at all, Keep a lookout for, you know, sign up for the newsletter because I'm going to be sending out more information on that this next week. And also this book is right now $4 on Kindle. And so if you actually take off your, take out your phone to buy that on Kindle right now, I would not be upset with you. Or you can do it later if you're not ADD like me and you'll forget. So let me, let me kind of make this even more poignant. I'm going to ask a question that I really don't want to ask as a pastor, okay? I want to ask you, why don't you go to the mountains more often? Don't you dare say it out loud, it's because I want to go to church. Because I know that's ain't true. Okay? Kind of kidding, I'm kind of not. As you're thinking about that question, you're probably, it takes some form, right, of I'm too busy. Or I have to do this other thing. I'm, I, I, have, I have too much to do. And in putting work before rest, and work before wonder, we actually never get to see God at play. We actually maybe don't see God or don't understand how he might delight in it. Let me, let me tell you, I, I am literally the worst at this, okay? 
but maybe not the words literally in the like literal sense, but in the hipster sense. I'm literally the worst at this, okay? Uh, if you speak the Enneagram, I'm a three wing four, which means I'm an achiever. I like to do things. It makes me really happy to finish a task list. Not that I've ever finished a task list in the last several years. Um, but I also don't just want to achieve. I want to achieve like things are special. And I love to be creative about it. And so I had this tension in me of, of doing and being that is always, I feel like, at war within me. And I, frankly, will default to the doing way more than I will the being. I was actually trying to think of an example when I had a, a genesis moment of my own this morning while finishing up the sermon. And I, had, I got nothing. Like, I, I, just, I, couldn't, I couldn't think of anything recent at all. And I was like, well, this is concerning. I'm supposed to preach on this, like, authoritatively. Like, how do I even do this? And so I was like, okay, i got to stop. And so I, you know, my, my office is this kind of, like, outdoor backyard shed uh, building that's much nicer than a shed. Don't worry. Um, uh, and so I was like, I went in to, to, you know, get a drink and go to the bathroom. And I came back out. And as I was, like, stressing about not doing a Genesis moment, because I get it, right? Um, I'm walking back to my office, and on the ground to my left, this is really doing the wrong picture. I'm actually smiling. Um, I see these little three concrete rent rectangles that with handprints in them. And a few years ago, when we redid our backyard and did landscaping, um, we had some extra concrete left over. I remember like the, the Tupperware that we put it in and, and Ransom was like three. And so we, we put our handprints in and, and I just put them there on in the mulch as I you know go to my office. And two things struck me. One, I've been thinking about and using as I've been thinking about the Psalm this entire time I've been preparing for it, that creation is like God's playroom. In that moment, I was like, I was like, hey, creed, you, my goodness is in you too. You bear my image. You reflect my goodness in ways that I kind of needed to hear, honestly. And the other thing that struck me was how I walk past it every day and don't even notice. And what amazing gift that nourishes my, nourished my soul in that moment. And it makes me wonder, right, is my challenge with these Genesis moments is it because I've remade God into my own image and I see him through my own lens of doing and achieving and being efficient and being effective and it's not that those things are bad it's that they're just not all of God and they're also not all of me thank God it makes me wonder how would we live and understand and see life differently if we believed that God was playful that he could take even the scary stuff of our lives and say like, hey, there's delight to be found here. Maybe there's delight in you. Would you, be as would you be as discouraged or stressed if you knew that God delighted in you? The second essential ingredient that Makoto Fujimura says as part of generativity is generosity. In 27 through 28, he says, these all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they're filled with good things. Creation is generous, and that is a reflection of God's own generosity. And creation, then, is intended to be and to serve as this epic 
meta-genesis moment, a, a constant resource of genesis moments to pull us out of our scarcity mind, mindsets so that we can be more generous like God is generous with us, as he demonstrates in creation. And just as art imitates life, we are designed to imitate our creator. In Genesis 1, with this, this whole psalm is just like screaming like a neon billboard that, that just is rooted in that. In Genesis 1, 26 through 28, it's, it's what we call the, the cultural mandate, where God says, you are made in my image. Humanity bears God's image, and we, are ref- we reflect our creator in that we cultivate. And he says in verse 28 specifically uh, that we are called to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, we're called to, to multiply and cultivate. We are called to steward God's good creation. Now, I just summarized things entire books and, and volumes and series of volumes have been, have been written on. But the point of it, and the point of it being referenced in Psalm 104, is that all is good. That the very act of God creating everything is an act of hospitality on God's part. That we are called to enjoy it, but not to stop there. Because to bear God's image, to reflect his image in creation as his creator means to also be generous with our enjoyment, to multiply our enjoyment, to be a blessing to others. So I'd ask you, how can you multiply your enjoyment and cultivate out of what God has given you? That's what it means to be generous and to be inspired by the Genesis moments of creation bearing. Lastly, the third essential agreement, in Gideon. And I'm going to be brief on this one because I've been kind of hammering this point a lot the last couple weeks, is what Fujimura calls generational thinking. Now, it doesn't, sound, it doesn't seem very obvious in verses 29 through 30, but it's so there in that he says, when you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. It's describing creational renewal. It's describing the very fact that God has not just only created all things, like this kind of, you know, un- disinterested watchmaker who wound it all up and then let it go and, and is not involved anymore, that God is constantly creating. He keeps on creating. Verse 30, when it, it says when it says spirit, that word is ruach in Hebrew. And it's the same word that's translated in the Old Testament as, as spirit as well as breath and wind. So what he's saying is, I am constantly breathing new life into you. I keep creating. Therefore, life is this ongoing and recurring gift that God of God's intentional and sustaining presence, and He is constantly doing it. And we can see this in creation. I want to like stop here and just keep reading Psalm 104 over and over again, right? And that's actually kind of the point. Because when, when, when the psalmist transitions into to verse 31, he just is like, you know what? Okay, creation's fine. Let's talk about the one who made it now, right? Dallas Willard said that beauty is God's goodness made manifest to the senses. Beauty is God's goodness made manifest to the senses. And if food is God's love made tasty, it's one of my all-time favorite quotes, Creation, then, is God's goodness made manifest to image bearers, to those whom he created it for as a playground to enjoy. It is an extravagant feast for the senses, a generative fable set with beauty in land, sea, and sky. 
all reflecting the unparalleled goodness and the inexhaustible love and grace of its creator and divine source. The psalmist spends the first 30 out of 35 verses just marveling at the wonder and beauty of creation's generativity, specifically in order to build this ascetic momentum for praising the creator, our creator. You can't just pass along compliments to the chef this way. You have to cry praise to Yahweh, which, by the way, praise to Yahweh, when it's translated there in the very last verse, that is the word hallelujah, translated into English. We, we sing it a lot. We sang it this morning, hallelujah, right? We sing it in Christmas hymns especially, but this is the first time in scripture that phrase comes up because it is the only right and good response to seeing God's goodness reflected in creation. mic drop and there's a book drop very different impact now how many of you heard that was actually really if i were smarter i would have tied that in perfectly because uh the next thing in my notes is did you hear the record skip in verse 35 did you hear the books drop in verse 35 right you might have noticed this as we were reading through it and there's just all this like celebration and enjoyment of creation and the creator and then it says let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more Come again? That feels like some serious poetic whiplash, doesn't it? Why is this in here? Why does the psalmist go in here? Because he's, if he's going to remind us and, and parallel Genesis 1, and even uh, in, in verses 5 through 9 somewhere, uh, it talks about how he's setting the boundaries so that the waters may not pass. This is a reference to the Noahic flood, right, in Genesis 9. And he's like, He's, he's reminding everybody of the first dozen or so chapters of Genesis. And then he puts this in here because if you were familiar with the first dozen chapters of Genesis, you would know that not everything goes according to plan. And by that, I mean nothing goes according to plan. That we, in our original Genesis moment, screw everything up. And that in the midst of that, there are all these fractures and, and distortions of uh, God's original good creation. And so this kind of serves as a postscript, like a PS, like what, you know, if you forget something uh, at the end of a letter uh, in, you know, or after you've texted. You know, a letter, by the way, is like something that came before texting. You would say this is a postscript, this is a reminder that despite humanity failing our original OG Genesis moment, that A, we are still responsible to steward that creation, like God still entrusts us with that. That's bonkers. And B, that we need to be aware of our temptation to steward that irresponsibly. For the last, last couple of weeks, um, I, I, I've been using this phrase that because the Psalm 103 evokes and connected to Exodus and I was talking about how we melt down God's blessings in order to make idols of our own in our own image, right? This is a similar reminder that we use creation to build towers of Babel instead of beholding the God of Abraham. I want to I unpack that a little bit because this is, it's not like an explicit part of this text, but it is something that would have been utterly communicated implicitly to this original audience. And then we'll jump into the Q&A after this. And that is it's a reminder of the towers that we love to build. 
And if it weren't for those powers that we build, we would more fully enjoy and love creation and creator. So this is getting back to what I said in the beginning, that, that, that we, we can use creation. We can enjoy creation for our own sake in ways that don't reflect the creator. And then we're actually missing out. So let me, let me explain what I mean by this, by powers of Babel. In Genesis 11, after the flood, the f- like one of the first things that, that humanity does is say, you know what? What we need to do is we need to ignore God. And so they say in Genesis 11 verse 4, it says, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Right? Building cities, good. Right? We are taking and cultivating what, with what God created ex nihilo, in other words, from nothing, and we are making something of it in a human society. Like, that's a good thing. Let, but it says, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, kind of a weird motivation, right? What's going on here is that create cultural mandate I talked about a, a few minutes ago. Of, of filling the earth and subdue it and multiplying and cultivating. They're saying like, yeah, we don't like that plan from calling God. We want to operate as if we don't bear your image. And therefore, we also need to make a name for ourselves, which is a source of dignity, value, and worth. In other words, we need to create or achieve our own identity apart from you. And, and we're going to do that by building a tower up to the heavens. It's so fun learning about Genesis 11 because the way that it, the, the story is told is very like almost sarcastic and mocking of this because where God came down to breathe ruach, right? Life into dirt and create Adam and then Eve, these builders are like, hey, we can do that too. We can mix water with that same dirt and make bricks and then pile them one on top of another in order to ele- elevate ourselves to become, to be more like God. And then it goes, God says, let us go down and see how that's going. It's like God saying, like, oh, that's cute. I can't see it from here. I'm so, high, so much higher above this still. Let me go, let's go down and, and see how that's going for you. And it doesn't go well for us, right? It's, and it's because when we say we want to make a name for ourselves, what we are doing is we are rejecting the dignity, value, and worth that is gifted to us Imago Dei image bearers. And instead, we want to achieve our own dignity, value, and worth. Man, it's just so, it's really too bad that like we can't identify with anything that the Old Testament talks about 3,000 years removed. It's almost like the more things change, the more they stay the same. Right? Their goal was to not need God, just as our anxiety and our busyness is an attempt to not need God. It doesn't end well for them, and it doesn't end well for us now. So here's the good news. Immediately after the Tower of Babel, like it, this is intentional. Genesis 12, God calls Abraham and says, okay, I'm gonna, we're going we're gonna to do this right. Instead of a city, he makes a covenant. He says to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation. The word nation is goyim, it's people. So, so a great community. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. God's saying, you can't bear my image and live without me at the same time. You cannot actually. You cannot achieve doing this on your own. You cannot create your own meaning from mud. 
You can't achieve your dignity, value, and worth, but you can receive it as a gift. Because that's actually what he created you for. That's the entire point of creation. It's all a gift. All is grace. And this is why when we achieve our dignity, value, and worth, and we, we put all of our resources toward that end, when we build our towers of Babel, we, and we want to make a name for ourselves, it is degenerative, not generative. It actually dehumanizes us and others, and it's because it is built on anxious self-concern. But receiving our dignity, value, and worth, where God makes our name great, that's generative. It rehumanizes us and those around us, and we are freed from self-concern. Here's, what, here's, where I'm gonna, here's where I'll end it before we go into questions, so please text those in. This, this, this revolution does not stop in Genesis 12. And so in, uh, in the New Testament, in Acts 2, when we, when we come to the point of Pentecost where the church is inaugurated, the New Testament church, we actually see Babel being reversed, right? When God came down to see how things were going with their tower, he says, you know what? You guys are really competent because I created you to be this way, to cultivate, but you're misusing it. So I'm just going to make it a little bit harder for you so that you can actively depend on me instead of passively depend on me. I'm going to confuse your languages so you can't communicate with each other. Now, like, we, what's really funny about that is, like, we actually can speak the same language most of the time, and we still can't communicate with each other. But that's beside, beside the point, right? That's why at Pentecost it says that everybody who did not speak each other's tongue suddenly understood each other. That's what's happening. That's the why. The miracle, it's not just to demonstrate God's power, like, oh, everybody can understand each other. That'll make starting a church a lot easier, as if it's a utilitarian, oh, that's, that's me leading into it again. No, God is undoing what we have misused and abused in our creation. And with the church, the church is then framed, we understand that the church is the new creation. Like if everything that the psalmist is saying about Psalm 104 demonstrates the goodness of God, how much more this jacked up room of people? And the grace that has to be, that has to come from God in order for that to work for six years of it working, despite a pandemic, never mind the church being like exploding in growth and being healthiest where it is most persecuted and discriminated against. There has to be a God around here somewhere. And if you think creation is beautiful in all the senses of the word. Like, wait till you meet God's new creation. Yeah, it's messy. Yeah, we have our own natural disasters in community, right? This is the place that God has created as a greenhouse of wonder, where in the midst of an inhospitable world and, and, and the, the, the culture of, that is bereft of beauty, we have a, a unique space where God stretches out a canvas and says, let me show you what real beauty looks like. Where our longing for that beauty can both be sated by God and savored by his creature. Where, we, where it says in Acts 2.33, where awe comes upon every face. One question for us. You touched on this a bit with your fourth point, but any further thoughts about subduing creation as it relates to climate change and other environmental harm? It seems humanity has pretty well figured out how to subdue creation and has frequently proceeded to beat it into a pulp. Not to put too fine a point on it. Um, yes. This is part of the reason why I was trying to, to frame it like, okay, let me take this back. Um, Enjoyment is a thing, 
without a generosity that multiplies that enjoyment with others, ends up using and abusing it. When we enjoy something without reflecting about how it is a reflection of God and his goodness and his generosity, we use it. That's usury. That's not stewardship. When we understand that a thing is, is, is entrusted to us but is not ours, we treat it more specially. Except rental cars. Okay. If it, if, it, if it was God's rental car, maybe we'd do it differently, right? My point is this. That is part of how things have, that's where things go wrong, right? When we don't think about our, our, our posture and our, our responsibility to steward it well. Now, does that mean, I've also woven in, into the sermon this morning language of anxious self-concern. If there's one thing that I, I take issue with around the way we talk about this, what you bring up about climate change and environmental harm, is that that, because we live in a culture that, that, that only understands how to motivate people through perpetual outrage and anxiety, we don't know how to do that as an expression of gratitude for the gift we've been given. We, and, and let me tell you, that might change what we do and how we do it, not just the posture and the experience of, of doing it. Right? It's not appreciation that doesn't transform our how and our what isn't actually fully appreciating it. And so, yeah, I would say that that is, there's a lot there. Um, and don't read poetry as a how-to manual, right? It's a very good question. It's prompted by this, but also this isn't trying to address that. That's totally a, um, a very good question that um, don't try to like, figure out what percentage of our energy consumption solely versus wind based on climate of what, right? Um, any other questions? Any more questions? Okay. Um, we've talked a lot about creation this morning, right? We've talked about how that is a reflection of God's goodness, that he clothed in it, clothed in it. And then I ended the sermon talking about how the church is the new creation, Okay, well, how is that? How is that beautiful then? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Makoto Fujimura also write, wrote another book. Well, he wrote many books, but this one's called Silence and Beauty. Uh, it's tagline, it's Hidden Space Born of Suffering. It's about the movie, well, before that, the book, um, uh, Silence. Um, but in it, he talks about the Japanese ideograms, the, the Japanese word for beauty and how it is, is drawn and, and, and pictured. And he notes that it's a, uh, the Japanese word for beauty is a Chinese ideogram, ideogram composed of two others, sheep on top and grapes on the bottom. He quotes a uh, philosopher named Kimonobu, an aesthetic philosopher, um, and he says this, in comparing beauty and goodness, I, I consider beauty to be the more transcendent of the two. The ideogram of goodness is made up of two ideograms, one of a sacrificial sheep on top of another one of a box. Okay? To be good, it is only necessary to fulfill predetermined sacrifice determined by society. That's the box, the predetermined part. It's a sheep that fits, fits in a box. Paying taxes or participating in traditions, rituals, and such. But the ideogram for of beauty is made up of a sacrificial sheep on top of an ideogram for grapes, which means greater sheep, which connotes a greater sacrifice. Sacrifice that cannot be boxed 
sin by rituals or stealth. This greater sacrifice requires sacrifice of one's own life to save the lives of others. The sacrifice originates through self-intuitive, self-initiative, a willing sacrifice. This is what is truly beautiful. This is what is truly beautiful. God did not come to be born of a man in Jesus in order to just show us beauty, though that would have been amazing and enough. He did so in order to make us beautiful, to remake us. That is the new creation. That is what we celebrate his having done and will do to completion someday. So when Jesus was with his disciples and he says, this is my body, this bread is my body, is broken for you, he is saying, I'm going to make you new. And when he takes the wine, he pours it out and he says, this is the blood of the new covenant is given for the forgiveness of sins. He is saying, I'm going to take away that temptation to use my creation to build towers to your own ego. And this wine, this blood, it seals you into this new reality that I get to make beautiful. He says, as often as you eat this bread and you drink this wine, you proclaim my death until I return. It's done, guys. If you're worried about being beautiful, you are. If you're worried about being made new, you are. It's not because of anything you have achieved. It's no dignity, dignity, value, and worth you had to offer. But that is what we feast on every week at communion. So if that is your hope or desire and longing, met or not, come and eat and feast upon the beauty of God in Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, I hope and pray in every way that, man, I spoke that over, but Lord, thank you for delighting in us. Thank you that it doesn't matter how well I spoke or didn't or not. You are beauty incarnate. You make us beautiful in you. Lord, thank you. Help us to delight in you just a fraction of the way that you delight in us. Pray this in your name. Amen. Come and eat.